in this episode with Anne Tolly. But I, I am a bit of a stroppy sort of a person. I'm a straight-talking sort of person. So, so, And I think I always have been, even as a child, quite determined, quite resolute. And, um, and I, I guess one of the characteristics that I've learned about myself is I don't I don't like people to see when I'm emotionally affected. They're what, very strict. What were you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. they're very strict. So um, almost perfectionist really. So so it was one of the things that I used to growl at them, complain to them about that. I always had to do the very best that I could, which meant if I came second in something, it was, well, well why didn't you come first? What, what, what was it that you didn't do? That, that you didn't come first, whereas, you know, I thought se coming second was pretty good. <laughs> and I was the only one, actually, of the four children that didn't go right. teaching. All, mm -hmm. all my brother and sister trained as teachers and my um, younger sister uh, ended up teaching. Mm -hmm. um, she trained in ho hospitality and then ended up teaching that. So right, yeah. I was the only one that didn't go teaching. But I, as I said to my dad, I became the minister. So that was when I knew that if you really wanted to make a difference, you had to be in Wellington. It's it's a failure to address that core to take them on that journey with you, mm. and I understand it because change is is um, change is really worrying for people. It can be quite traumatic. Mm. Um, we fear change yeah. generally as human beings. Yeah. Looking back on it, I didn't have the strength to say this is not for me anymore. I just took the easy way out, really. And then some of them went and put themselves in front of the car with their children. They had small children with them. And that's that was really scary, that they would risk, you know, put their own children at risk to make a political point. Um, Anne, thank you very much for joining us today and um, giving up some of your precious time. I know you're extremely busy, um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, what I'd like to do is ask uh, what can be a tricky question to start off with. Um, the, the show's called Life's Work. Can you describe to me how you would maybe sum up what your life's work is? I was thinking about that, actually. I, I don't have an easy answer. I, I, I got into politics because I wanted to... Uh, first of all, work in my community. So I guess underneath it all is a desire to 
um, improve whatever I'm involved in is to make it better for people. Right. Um, and that and that underlies everything, I think. Mm. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So then if, if we can, um, I'd like to sort of go back in time a little yeah. bit. <laughs> And, uh, and and talk about and maybe as a, as a child, if you could describe what it was like growing up, where you grew up, um, and what kind of character were you back then? Well, I'm the eldest of four children, and both my parents were teachers. Um, so I grew up in quite a strict, and I think the eldest is always um, the one who's who's more responsible, who um, uh, who has to take the lead in the family and. Um, it, it was, and, and even with my own children, the first one, you don't quite know what you're doing, so you tend to be a bit more conservative. But I had a great childhood, um, very, very close family. Uh, um, we started off, I was, I was actually um, started off in the West Coast, way down. My dad did his um, country service down in a little place called Jacobs River, uh, which is down by the Franz Joseph Glacier, and then moved to Nelson. I remember Nelson. I went back to my primary school in Stoke as a Minister of Education and saw my classroom is still there. <laughs> and I remember that um, move from Nelson to Hawke's Bay uh, when I was about seven and I couldn't understand why my parents had left such magnificent beaches where we spent a lot of time. My parents were fishers. Um, and, and we moved to Hawke's Bay where the beaches were all pebbles and stones. Um, so then I spent the rest of rest of my time growing up in, in Napier, uh, in Taradar, and, um, and and really had a very good childhood. I loved school. I took part in all sorts of things at school. I was one of those active sort of people. And I've always believed that if you want to get, you know, if you want to have good experiences, you've got to put a lot into it. So the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. So I was involved in sport. I was involved in um, art and drama and um, debating and you name it, I, I took part in it. And, and really had, when I look back, I had a great childhood. Yeah. I'm detecting a, a slight bit of emotion there talking about your childhood. Is, well, is I've that just, fondness? I've, I've, yes, and I've, and I've lost my, both my parents um, within 18 months of one another, really, um, 2020, uh, and then I lost my mum in 2022. So... Um, it is it is quite raw still uh, that that family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I won't push you too much on that stuff. I know how that feels. So can I can I just go back to a second? You made a comment, um, obviously moving mm. to the Hawks Bay. Was that because of your parents needing to move for, for yeah. work? Yeah, my dad. I remember asking my dad because you know we'd gone from this love South Island and that yeah. crisp winter weather. Um, and I remember asking him why we were moving, and he and because he was a teacher, and he was a very ambitious man, um, and he said, "Well, if we move to Hawkes Bay, it's a bigger population, and I've got more chance of actually then moving in my career without having to move the family." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm interested. Actually, just uh, the reason why it's very personal, I suppose. My daughter on the way to school today, she's saying goodbye to a friend who's moving to the South Island because of her parents needing to move for work. Yeah. Um, and I know that that particular girl's probably not 100% happy about doing that um, and dealing with that, uh, the consequences of that. So how, how did that, can you remember how that felt for you as a, as a child? Oh, and yes, and it, it was quite traumatic. Uh, uh, 
made worse by the fact that my mother was a sewer um, and, and actually she became a home craft teacher. And so most of our clothes and children's clothes in those days were very expensive. So most of my clothes my mother made and my very best dress I was allowed to wear to my new school on the very first day. But it was the uniform of the Catholic school next door. And and that didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, no one takes any notice mm. of it today. But, but all those years ago it was still um, quite a thing and um, – uh, yeah, I, I I didn't have a good start at my school, so right. so the move is unsettling enough, and then to go into your new school and find that you're ostracised for quite some time um, was 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 quite yeah. difficult, and 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 obviously I still remember it all these yeah, years. Yeah, later. clearly, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's obviously a big impact. So, as a, as a character, you know, and back then, how did you, you know what kind of character were you that maybe enabled you to handle that, or you know, did you handle that? Um, oh, well, I, I probably did. Um, I was always a good student, so school was important to me. And my parents, um, obviously, as, as teachers, valued education. So so I just buried myself, really. Um, but I, I am a bit of a stroppy sort of a person. I'm a straight-talking sort of person. So, so, And I think I always have been, even as a child, quite determined, quite resolute and... Um, and I, I guess one of the characteristics that I've learned about myself is I don't, I don't like people to see when I'm emotionally affected, um, whether they've hurt me or whether I'm um, cross or whether uh, I'm grieving. You know, I, I keep a lot of stuff inside, and I suppose it's a defence mechanism. Um, and, and I don't know whether that's. And I've talked to other elder child child children and and some some of them not all of them have that same so so you're the one that's expected um to keep everything together when when, when everything's you know a bit mm. chaotic mm. leadership I leadership yeah yeah okay what are the, what do you think of the consequences of that Hara? i mean is that something that you've carried through life is that does it have a consequence you know keeping that stuff in yeah it does yes it, it does um and, and particularly today, we're much more open about our emotions. So, you know, I was uncomfortable with the fact that I could feel myself welling up when I when I talked about my my early family life because it's quite raw, actually. And I've got my sister living with me at the moment, my youngest. Um, she's the youngest in the family. And she had a dream last night. And she was just telling me as I came to work, she dreamt about her parents. Um, so so it's, it's, it's obviously there. But... Um, yeah, I feel uncomfortable with 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 showing those emotions, and yet I burst and I mean I I tear up. Um, it was terrible as minister of education. I have to say, and I go to schools and these kids perform this, do these wonderful things, and I'd find myself tearing up so quickly. Uh, but that's a bit different. It's, it's a different thing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, we, we skipped forward a little bit there, but so as at school, you got both your Parents are teachers. Yes. Um, they're what, very strict. What were you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. they're very strict. So um, almost perfectionist really. So so it was one of the things that I used to growl at them, complain to them about that. I always had to do the very best that I could, which meant if I came second in something, it was, well, well why didn't you come first? What, what, what was it that you didn't do 
that that you didn't come first. Whereas, you know, I thought coming second was pretty good, <laughs> but to them it was always push me, push me, push me. Yeah, yeah. I read I read somewhere um, that uh, that they were always you know encouraging you. Well, I'll use the word encouraging you to strive for more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Think of my mother used to say, think of a word, think of a better word. Right. So, you know, that was a constant thing because I did a lot of public speaking yeah, yeah. Um, and debating. Think of a word, think of a better word. You go into politics, you think of a word, think of a simpler word. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. quite the reverse. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And how did, you know, looking back now retrospectively, did that serve you well? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, of course it was the right thing to do. And um, my frustration was they didn't push my brother the same way. Right, <laughs> but, okay. um, but it, it, you know, that's, it, I can't complain because it has served me well. Yeah. Always strive to do the very best that you can yeah. and, and never be afraid to try something new. Mm. Um, and if it doesn't work, that's fine. Yeah. How did that feel? And I'm asking, you know, questions about your childhood and I can't remember most of mine but how did that kind of feel as a child though you know obviously looking back you know that it was the right thing to do and and it served you well but did it feel that way as a child or did you feel like you were constantly being on at it it depended if if I did achieve I mean I was always I had a great relationship with my dad I miss him every day um but I was always trying to please him really when I when I look back now my whole life I've been trying to please him. And he wasn't an easy man to please um, because he always demanded more. And at times that was hard, but, um, but, at, but at other times when I did succeed, I knew, you know, I knew that he felt pleased and proud and, um, and helped me celebrate some of those successes. Mm-hmm. He, he, it was a different age too. I mean, he... Uh, a couple of times he missed important occasions for me, which I was quite resentful about um, because he was he was working. So, so you know, those were the days when Dad went to work. Dad's job was really, really important. The whole household revolved around Dad's job, um, and he was he was quite distant. Yeah. Whereas, because uh, he was climbing the ladder. But whereas my youngest my youngest sister, who was eleven years younger than me. She had a completely different relationship with him because by that stage he'd reached mm. the top of his career mm. and he had a bit more time to spend. Mm. Um, and mm. so so I envied her that. But, but that, as you get older, you have a different relationship as you have your own family. And um, So, you know, I, I had a good relationship, but it would have been nice to grow up 11 years later. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I, how do you think that your childhood and upbringing obviously you you've got fond memories of that and and it served you well as you've said how does that comp- i mean obviously each family is different but in general terms like you said it was a kind of different era how do you think it compares with like today and i'm speaking as i've got a um you know my youngest daughter's 12 um and i'm trying to encourage her to be the best that she can be and i all i get back is you know that i'm going on at her and it seems like it's a different kind of age yeah. that where yeah you you know it's not a coming second it's participating that counts and yes. all of that kind of stuff you know just do you have an opinion on 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 that look kids know you can't fool kids they're actually really smart 
So we had this, you know, you get this a lot all the time. It's it, it's not the winning that counts, it's the participating. Uh, and I listen to my granddaughter when she's playing netball and she's now 11 and she's, you know, a, a bit, she know they know who wins. They, they, you might not get any um, recognition for winning the game, but they actually know who's got the most goals. Yeah. So so I think it's more of a an adult thing that right. makes us feel good, yeah. um, but actually the kids know. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Did you? But, have, but I think it, it was a different era, and yeah. even with my children, and my children are now in their mid-late 40s, uh, so again, that was a different era. My husband was much more involved in their upbringing than my parent, my father was. And today, my I see my son with his children, and it, and it's a whole different world apart. Um, so, and I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do. I think um, the men were quite isolated from their families mm-hmm. sixty sixty odd years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all about going to work and. Um, and, and, you know, being the breadwinner for the family, which was a huge responsibility. Mm. And um, uh, so, I, I, no, I think, I, think it's, I think it's much better today. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I agree. <laughs> um, did you have any ambitions as a, as a child growing up through school? Um, I wanted to be you know, a vet. You did? Okay. I loved, I loved animals. My, my parents um, bred and showed dogs. We had Springer Spaniels and Fox Terriers. Right. And my father trialled dogs, dog trials, and and I used to go with him um, to do that. So um, I I wanted to be a vet until we visited some people on the farm and I saw the vet put his hand up the cow's backside (laughs) and I decided that that wasn't going to be good for me. And then I floundered because all my life, so that must have been, I must have been about 14 uh, when, when I thought, actually, I don't really think. That's the sort of job that I want, mm. um, and and then I really floundered as to what I wanted to do, uh, and I went off to. I, then I wanted to be an exchange student, and I wanted to go to America because I mean television was was showing us this wonderful lifestyle in in America, um, and so I wanted to go to America, and I did in in my what would have been my seventh form year, um, and it wasn't anything like. <laughs> what we saw on television. <laughs> but um, during that time, my parents convinced me, my father was sure I'd make a great teacher. And so I got accepted into secondary training, um, which, you know, I only signed, the, I signed the papers because I couldn't think of anything else to do. Right. Um, but when I came came back, my uncle convinced me to go into computers. Mm-hmm. And I went and trained with the government as a computer in the computer program mm. to learn how to be a programmer. And right, okay. um, in the days when, you know, computers filled huge rooms. And yeah. so I gave up my teaching, which broke my father's heart, Right, actually. He took him a long time to come to terms with the fact okay. that I hadn't gone teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You weren't following in the family business. No, and, and I was the only one, actually, of the four children that didn't go right. teaching. All, okay. all my brother and sister trained as teachers, and my um, younger sister uh, ended up teaching. Um, she trained in hospitality and then ended up teaching that. So right, yeah. I was the only one that didn't go teaching. But I, as I said to my dad, I became the minister. So yeah. that was almost as good. Yeah, yeah. one upmanship. 
Very good, very good. So, well, we'll come to that. I think you know, as we as we progress through this conversation. But um, so, you were working for the government in computer programming. Mm. What, what was what was that like, and you know, what did you learn from that? No, it was period ex- of time? it was exciting because it was really quite new, and um, and it, it, it opened up a whole a whole new world. So uh, at that stage, the computer the government had three different computers doing different bits of of their work. And I worked on the ICL, which which was actually converting school certificate into uh, being computerised. Um, and that was when I first got to see the public service. And uh, I, I remember, you know, Roger Hall's gliding on was pretty close to the <laughs> truth. Yeah. My boss would come into work in the morning and he would do the crossword, the Dominion crossword until morning tea. And we all kept clear of him until he'd completed the crossword. Um, some some of it was was absolutely accurate in, in, um, from Roger Hall's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also worked on uh, the uh, um, Treasury had they had a Burroughs machine and an IBM machine, and the IBM machine was the um, the tax system. And, and later on, as a minister, when we were sitting around the table uh, at a cabinet committee and the Inland Revenue came to present on their major upgrade, billions of dollars worth of upgrade, because their tax, as they described it, had a, a central core program. And then over the years, little bits had been tacked on it. And basically they said to us, you can't make any more changes, otherwise the system is liable to collapse. And I and and I found for the first time that that central core was what I had worked on um, briefly while I was working for the for the government way back in yeah. in 1970. Yeah. So um, and that that was still COBOL, right. which was the the commercial language of the time. Yeah. So I just picked up on there as well that you were working on school certificates. So there was still yes. an education. Yes, angle. yes. Has there been an education right. angle to everything you've done? I'm just. <laughs> there probably has. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so so what one what then after after that? After um, so then I came back to Hawke's Bay and um, Wellington weather just drove me crazy. Mm. Came back to Hawke's Bay and went to work uh, in Rothmans, t- a tobacco company, in their computer section, and that's where I met my husband. Right, um, and he was. Um, uh, he was at that time he was quality control manager. Uh, and so we had a whirlwind romance. I, I was heading off overseas with my uh, work colleagues, so the two of us were going to go overseas. And at that stage, if you had um, COBOL language, computer language, and a bit of Fortran, which was a scientific language, you could get work anywhere in the world. And so we were heading away. And then I met my husband, and I had to make the decision, did I, did I go off and carry on with my overseas travel? Or did I think that this this guy was something special and I should hang around a bit? And I made that the latter decision, mm. and I was absolutely right because mm. I certainly got a jewel. Yeah, and you, you've am I right in thinking that you've hung around for quite a bit? Is it? Are you it's married, our 50th married 50th wedding 50th? anniversary. Yeah, this was, year, I thought it was. Yeah. yeah, congratulations on that. Yeah, that's a big uh, big milestone. Um, so, and so then then what? You got you get married. Fairly young, I think. Yeah, I was twenty. Yeah. 
Yeah, incredible to think yeah. about that today. But yeah. that was the norm. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And uh, and he was older than me, so he's about nine and a half years older than me. So he was really ready to settle down and have a family. Mm. Um, and so yes, so our son was born a year and eight days later. Um, and then a year later, our daughter was born. Mm. And in those days, of course, when you got pregnant, you had to you had to stop work. Mm. So I gave up. I gave up work when I was about five months pregnant. I mean, today, I mean, and I worked. I didn't have any front facing. You know, I could today. You carry on working and yeah. Yeah. Um, and take your maternal mm. maternity leave and, mm. and come back. But in those days, that wasn't the case. So we had a family and. Um, and my husband, because we had a, it was a year and a day between the two children, so it was worse than twins because one would be up and the other one would be down, and then and then they'd swap. Um, so at that stage, Alan um, changed his job and he took over management of the night shift, which meant that he was home until two o'clock, and worked two till ten. Mm. So we could have our meal and the main meal in the middle of the day, and and he could help a bit with the children. Um, and we did that for a while, and then uh, I, I realised that we were both smokers, um, and I remember saying to him, look, I, I want you around to see our grandchildren, and I really think he was on their taste panel, so he would be smoking maybe up to 60 cigarettes a day. Wow. Not not the whole thing, because yes, you're tasting, course. you only Yep. taste a little bit of it, but still it was it was mm. a lot. Mm. And so um, he looked for another job and he went to work at uh, Tomorna Freezing Works in, in Hastings as an assistant works manager and he was in charge of the beef house and all the, all the um, extra bits and pieces. He didn't manage the sheep part of it, but, mm. but everything else he, mm. he managed. And... Um, and I felt a lot happier, and we ate some pretty darn good meat. <laughs> Very good. Oh, and what were you thinking at at that point in time? Obviously, you're a. I got frustrated mum. being at home. I was going to ask, yeah. So, you know, what were your thoughts about career at that point? Well, I did, still didn't have any career thoughts. I, I did want to go back, uh, and I eventually did go back and worked in in the computer um, section. Um, but I, I did get very frustrated. I found it really boring at, at home, and. I used to do. I did all sorts of things. I did. Um, I managed uh, for Halen Research. I managed their their Hawkes Bay um, um, pro, uh, survey process. Um, I did. Um, I did. I painted signs for supermarket windows uh, for their specials. I, I did all sorts of things to get a bit of extra pin money mm. and um, and to keep myself out and about. Um, I wasn't. Uh, you know. I, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a very devoted mother. I mean, I love my children, mm. but they weren't enough stimulation for me, mm. uh, and I didn't um, get involved in, in you know all the things that mums get involved with normally when their focus is totally on their children. Mm. Mm. I need I needed more, and I was young. I mean, I was. I think um, by the time I was thirty, all my children were at school. So I did go back and I worked for a company called Williams and Kettle, who were a computer bureau, and I worked part time for them. My husband and I have always been—he's when I met him, he was always involved in property, so we had a lot of rental flats. Um, 
we converted, you know, we'd buy an old house and convert it into flats uh, or we'd buy an old house. We've lived in big old Edwardian or Victorian homes to save them from demolition and, you know, done them up and turned them into homes. Uh, and so I then went into selling real estate for a couple of years and because, you know, thought, well, I can contribute to that by, by um, understanding the market and, and, you know, you can find all sorts of uh, opportunities. Mm. So I did that for a couple of years, mm. which mm. I really hated. Right. <laughs> okay. What was it about that you didn't like? Oh, um, it, it's just such an up and down. And you can put a lot of work into, into trying to find people a home. You, you go through a whole lot of questions about what they want and then they end up buying something from someone else that's completely different from what they told you they want. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I think you have to have a, you have to be a lot more um, uh, serene than I am. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. And so, and so, what was next in your kind of? So, so then um, we had decided when we got married we'd have our children early, and then we would uh, go on the trip, that the overseas trip. My husband had, had done his OE. I'd, I'd obviously stopped mine. So we decided that we would then go as a family. So we had a 10-year plan to, to do that. It took us 11 years, but we had enough income coming in from our rental properties and we took our children, our three children, overseas and had 18 months. Mm. Bought, bought a camper van in London, right. as you do. Okay. And um, my husband's brother lived in Oxford. Right. And so we had his place as a sort of a, a, a base yeah. that we could head out from and then then we took off across Europe and we had 12 months with three children in a camper van uh, in non-English speaking countries. Um, uh, we had about four months altogether in Greece where we looked after a campground for someone through those winter months and, and got a cabin as a result of that so we could get out of the van. Mm. Um, and then we had three months in Egypt. We had a, a, an apartment in Egypt. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I travelled around and in the years, as the kids went through their teenage years and, you know, you've got that ahead of you, but um, sometimes it can be quite difficult. We always had that experience as a, uh, as a base that was something we could talk about comfortably. Mm. Um, and, and, and as a family, I think it, it strengthened us because we really did rely on one another mm. for conversation. Yeah. And um, and we still talk about different experiences that we had. Yeah. Very good. So so you've had a great trip um, overseas, and when you come back, what what was next? Yeah, well, neither of us had a job. Yeah. Um, and it was a really interesting time. So this was we went in eighty six, came back in eighty seven, and we came back. And the plan was that my husband, his father, had died while we were away, and he left mm. me in Greece and came back to New Zealand. And he bought um, uh, a set of flats. And the, so the, the, the plan was that he was going to turn those into own your owns. Mm -hmm. And he, he was going to work on that full time. So he was going to do full time developing. Um, and so, so I didn't have a job. And I looked around and the council elections were coming up. And I said to him, I think one of us should stand because... You know, we'd always bumped heads with the, with the planning department. Right. You know, things need to change. 
And he said, well, I'm not going to do it. And I said, well, okay, well, well, I'll have a go. And so I stood for council. And to my great surprise, I got elected. <laughs> and that started my political career, really. Yeah. So so what was the, was the motivation to get into, albeit at that stage, local politics? Was the main driver because of the, the stouches that you'd had with the planning department? Yeah, it was... It, 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 it was really to get a planning, to, to try and get a planning system that actually encouraged people to do things rather than found reasons to stop them. Right. And and that, that was how we felt and some of the people that we mixed with who'd, who were doing similar things. You, were, you always seem to be arguing as to why you should be able to do something rather than have the council helping you. And, and you know, it hasn't changed. Oh, I still yeah, get I that from say, people yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was my motivation, yeah, really, to, yeah. to go in and see if I could make a difference to the way that the council worked with, with people in its community. So rather than spend all the money and time and energy on finding reasons not to do things, ask how can we? How can we help? Yeah, you know, this yeah. is going to be difficult because of X, Y, and Z, yeah. but you could have you thought about X and have you thought about Y and mm. we could help you to do maybe um, investigate Z. Mm. So so you're in the council, you've been so elected. I'm in the council. Um, and how, how was that for you? Was that? It's a uh, steep learning curve. Yeah. I had an amazing mayor, a man called Dave Prevenson, and um, – he was a, he he ran a a local business. I think he was into piping and and um, I, I want to say drainage, but I think he actually manufactured the pipes for okay. for drainage and um, and a very clever man. Uh, and he was very very supportive of me um, and helped me tremendously and um, elevated me quite quickly into a chairmanship. Um, and, and, and as I say, that was a really interesting time. So first of all, 87 was the stock market crash. Mm. Uh, so the whole market changed and property changed quite dramatically and we lost a lot of money actually mm. in, the, in, the, in the process. Um, but local government was changing quite dramatically too. And people talk about the reforms of 89 and they think about the amalgamations and that was a big part of it. But also it was a transformational time for local government you know, we had the old town clerk who sort of, you know, it was all very laid back and um, it, it was it was done on the smell of an oily rag and um, and, it, and it wasn't, it, 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 you don't want to be derogatory because actually it worked really well and huge investment was made into creating communities, but it, it needed to be modernised and all of that was happening. And so my mayor, David, saw that this was coming and he started changing the Napier City Council into a much more professional corporate-based um, model and he gave me the chairmanship of that corporate um, committee to oversee those changes. So changes to the way that accounts were, were, were managed, changes to, so, so that we were prepared then for those big changes that the reforms of 89 made. And we were, we were in a, a very good position. And I think that's because he came from a business background and he knew, you know, how you had to run your accounts in a business-like way mm. um, and set your budgets and work to the budget. And, um, and so that was a really interesting time. Uh, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed the work. 
And then the next election uh, was a new mayor came in and um, and he asked me to be his deputy. I was, I think I was the highest polling candidate, uh, but he asked me to be his deputy. The day I was sworn in then was the day that there were two big meatworks in Hastings, Fakatu and Tomona. And the day I was sworn in, Fakatu Freezing Works closed. Because I guess there was all that reform in the freezing works happening at that time. So that, that was a really interesting period. Mm. Uh, and Hawke's Bay's unemployment went to 18.5%. Mm. Um, and that's when I realised, and we did a whole lot of things. Michael Laws was actually the Hawke's Bay um, Member of Parliament. And we did a lot of work together creating employment within the councils um, to, tr to try and, I mean, you know, that, that's devastating for the, mm. for the community. And so um, that was when I knew that if you really wanted to make a difference, you had to be in Wellington because we could, we could do stuff, and we, but we're really fiddling around the edges. If you really wanted to change mm. how your communities work mm. and how you manage change, you had to be in Wellington. So it's interesting. I was going to ask you about that. So obviously at that time you described the, the, the state of the economy at the time. So I imagine that maybe the reasons for getting into local politics, wanting to make changes around, you know, freeing up the blockages for getting things done might not necessarily be as uh, as necessary at that time because maybe there wasn't the, the, the kind of infrastructure being built and um, yeah and development. Well, it all came to a shattering halt, really. Yeah, it would do. Yeah, um, because um, and, and interest rates. So, so if you just look at the project that 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 Alan was involved in, by the time we actually picked up the money to to, to do the work, mm. we were paying twenty two, twenty three percent in interest. Wow. Yeah, and um, and then GST was introduced mm. and. So, yes, yeah, so it, it, construction came to a grinding halt mm. and all over the place. Um, and it was a time of big reform, mm. big so reform. You, so you've talked, about, you've talked about that reform within the council, but were the, ch the changes that you'd kind of entered politics for, were you able to make any of those or, or did you <laughs> Not <find> really. <laughs> they I, kept me because, yeah. I, because, of course, then you have a conflict of interest because you yeah. actually have skin in the game. Yeah. Um, and the job I always wanted was chairman of the planning committee, uh, and 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 I couldn't have that because I had a com you know, real conflict of interest, right. um, and I didn't I didn't get support around the table, mm. uh, so so I did a whole lot of other things, right. but um, but didn't get didn't didn't get yeah. what I really okay, wanted. That's interesting. Yeah, being the conflict of interest that, yeah. that stopped you. I, I'm just I was. I suppose my, my line of questioning was really uh, having considered politics in, in the past for myself because I wanted to see change. Um, you know, how easy is it actually on the inside to make to bring about that change when you think on your outside? Surely all you need yeah. to do is just this. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard, it's slow, and um, and, and 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 it can any change in any organization. There's always a core of people who don't like change, mm. very comfortable, mm. um, and so all the failures that that, that I look back on, um, I don't. It's not all that core, but it's 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 a failure to address that core to take them on that journey with you, mm. and I understand it because change is is um, 
change is really worrying for people. It can be quite traumatic. Mm. Um, we fear change yeah. generally as human beings. Yeah. But, um, but, but yeah, but, that's the key word, isn't it? Fear. I yeah, think that's it what is. stops us all from, yeah, from any is. kind of change. Because it? you don't you don't know what it's going to be like mm. once it's all changed, yeah, and you're very yeah. comfortable. Might not be it might not be that flash, but you're comfortable with where with where you are. Yeah, yeah. And so a different way of doing things, a different way of thinking about things, yeah. is is tough. Yeah. yeah. So you got to penetrate down through your organisation, mm. and at a political level, certainly uh, at a ministerial level. That is really hard to do, really hard to do, mm-hmm. um, because you never get you never get anywhere near that that middle layer. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? You'd think that in those kind of roles that you would have uh, some element of control. Otherwise, you think you do. I mean, you can purpose, make structural changes. Yeah, um, you can't. Well, you can oversee and and and, and require structural changes, but. Um, Often it's much more complicated than you see from the outside. Mm, mm. Well, we, if we can, we'll come to that in a bit more detail because we, we've skipped ahead again. Now. Mm. I, want, I want to ask a question. Am I right in the research that you were deputy mayor at uh, Napier mm-hmm. and on the regional council at the same time? Yes. So in that in that reformation of um, local government, the regional councils were established which brought together a whole lot of little boards like Rabbit Board and the Catchment Board and a whole lot of those were brought together um, with an environmental, really an environmental and regulatory focus. And so I stood for the inaugural and was elected onto the inaugural Hawke's Bay Regional Council. And that was really good because um, we we actually had on it the mayors of Hastings and Napier uh, and... Um, got to be careful what I say, don't I? But but they've never never always got on. Then a lot of the time they never got on. Napier Hastings has a, a long history of antagonism and conflict. And at one stage, um, the mayor of Hastings wouldn't cross the river to come to Napier, and right. the mayor of Napier wouldn't cross the river to go to Hastings. And so the deputy mayors did all the all the socialising. But sitting around that Hawkes Bay regional table, we had the two mayors. And we had the deputy mayors of Central Hawke's Bay, Hastings, Napier and Wairoa. And it was a huge opportunity to, um, you know, to really put a regional lens over everything that we're doing. And we even introduced the hospital, which had been bubbling away because there was a hospital in Napier that, that, that that was getting old and a hospital in Hastings that was getting old and there was a conversation starting to be had about do we need one hospital for this area and blah, 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 mm-hmm. where would it be? Um, and unfortunately, I was trying to think of his name. He was the MP for, he was the na- National was in Government and um, he was the MP for Queenstown and he was the Minister for Local Government and he decided that you had to be one or t'other. Mm. You couldn't be both. It wasn't right to be both. Even though you could be an MP and a, and a, and a member of either council, right? Um, and so he changed the law, mm. and and you had to decide. And, and and I thought that was such a missed opportunity mm. for Hawkes Bay to come together and work together as a region. And there've been amalgamation tries a couple of times, and which had failed. Um, 
but that was a really good catalyst and um, that was disappointing. Right. But but for me, my time on the regional council, I didn't really enjoy. It's it's too far removed from people for me. Okay. Um, whereas whereas council, local government, is you know really you're really close. You're dealing with your community on a daily basis. Mm. Whereas the regional council is a bit more removed um, and dealing with more ethereal things like mm. you know mm. air quality, yeah. water quality, land quality, mm. and um, um, and, and and it didn't didn't thrill me as okay. much. Okay. So so you mentioned earlier about uh, the the only way to make a real difference is to go to Wellington. Mm. So I started talking to my husband about yeah. you know that, but my children were still at school, and I knew um, I didn't I didn't I didn't want to be away from home. I had teenagers, and I didn't I didn't think that would be good for them. Uh, so I was quite happy to wait until um, they'd largely finished school, mm. and and then I and, and I'd always kept out of national politics. I've I've always enjoyed local government that that well, you knew that you know people were more left or right, um, or centrist, but but politics didn't play national politics didn't play a big role. Um, so I'd always kept out of politics. Um, the local Labour MP had approached me quite early on in my local government. He, he had diabetes, um, Jeff Braybrook was his name, and he had uh, contracted diabetes and was considering retiring. And he had approached me to see if I would be interested and I said to say to him, I did think about it because it was a safe Labour seat, um, but I said to him, look, I, 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 would be, I would be wrong it would be wrong for me to take up that opportunity because I'm not really a Labour person. I'm really more to the right mm. than, than that. Um, and we and we remain good friends. Mm. Um, so so, I, but I did start talking to my husband about you know what it, what it would mean and would he would he consider it, and then then I did stand um, in. So so I didn't get elected back onto council in. 96. I didn't really try. I, I, I got really, I got quite disen, disenchanted. We had a great council which which rebuilt um, Napier City, Napier City Centre actually. And, and it's still like that today. Um, and then the following council we just had some people from outside council who just made life difficult. They questioned everything. They were always constantly in the media criticising. And that actually wears you down. Mm. And I was doing quite a lot of work with the development of McLean Park. Okay. And um, and we got the lighting. It was just a happy, happy coincidence that the lighting technology was changing at the same time as television camera technology. And so I convinced the um, New Zealand Cricket Council and New Zealand Rugby to put a bit of money in to help us and we put lights into McLean Park. And we had the first day-night cricket there and we had the first night um, all-black trial on McLean Park. So I was doing a lot of work with mm. that. And, and, and in those days, you know, the different breweries um, uh, sponsored the different, the, the, the different codes. So there was always an argument between cricket and rugby uh, as to how long they played and how long their breweries' um, signs were up. Uh, and, um, again, an individual 
who just came in at the last minute and just made life really, really difficult with everything we're trying to do. And I never, it's the only time in, in my whole career that I really felt I was up against someone who resented the fact I was a woman. Oh, um, okay. And it was, a, you know, a male domain. Rugby is about men, not women. Right. And so therefore, you know, what right have you to be involved? It's the only time in my life okay. I've really come up against that so overtly and and I just got so fed up with all of this, and I didn't even run a campaign. I, di- I didn't. I, I didn't have the strength. Re- looking back on it, I didn't have the strength to say this is not for me anymore. I just took the easy way out, really, and I knew I wouldn't be re-elected, and didn't try. Right. Which my father gave me heaps of. <laughs> <laughs> Can imagine after what you said earlier. Yeah, but but yeah. was very supportive, and um, and the, so that's that was then my opportunity to get involved with national politics. Right, that created the gap, if sure. you like. Sure, and so you did that. I did. Yeah, yeah, and I and I got very high on the list. Actually, we I had a great team who worked really hard to help mm. me, and I went into parliament at number twenty on the list mm. um, under Jenny Shipley. And but I went in as a list MP based in Napier, and then tried to win that electorate when Jeff Braybrook retired. Um, tried to win that electorate and and failed. So I had a, a 2002 to 2005. Um, I, I didn't have you know, wasn't in Parliament, and wasn't sure whether I wanted to go back. What really wasn't sure, and then I was had my arm twisted by a couple of colleagues who said, brought me the data and said, we, we think that the East Coast electorate is winnable um, and we'll, you know, we'll help you build a team and uh, support you. And so it meant moving to Gisborne. Mm-hmm. And so my poor dear husband mm-hmm. helped, you know, we sold our house and we moved up to Gisborne. He was reluctant, in fairness the last minute, uh, but I worked for a year, campaigned for a year to win that seat. And um, and I'll always be grateful to my husband because if I hadn't got elected, we were on the skin of our, on the bones of our bum, as, as they say, <laughs> yeah. because we used all our resources, mm-hmm. really. And people help you. I mean, you know, there were people that gave me um, um, petrol tokens and... Um, I would come round and, you know, there was always a box of goodies left on the doorstep mm. and they help you in a lot of ways. But it was a big electorate and I did a week in Gisborne and then I'd drive over and do a week in in Fakatani because the electorate went from Wairoa right round to the middle of the Fakatani River. So it, it's, it was a big electorate. It got bigger um, in my time, but it took a lot to actually, a, a lot of expense to to be moving around constantly. Mm. And people gave me accommodation mm. and um, were really, really helpful. Um, about three weeks out from the election, I was driving over um, the, the, the Trafford's Hill, which is the big hill um, at the end of the Waiweka Gorge on the Gisborne side, and my car stopped. Um, a truckie gave me a ride back to where I could get a phone and, and I rang a towing company uh, in a portiki who came out and picked up my car, didn't charge me, took it back to um, a great man in Fakatani called Wally Sutherland, 
who dropped an engine into it. He said, I don't know how long it'll last. I said, Wally, I've got $2,000 worth of sign writing on this car. I've only got, it's only got to last two and a half weeks. Um, and he didn't send me a bill for a couple of months and yeah. then he halved it. Sure. So, you know, people help you, but it still is a big ask, yeah. uh, financial um, risk that people take yeah. when they stand as candidate that I don't think a lot of people understand. No, I don't think they do. No, that's right. It's interesting insight. So, so you're an MP. What's it like being an MP? Oh, it was amazing. I I used to turn up to Parliament. I never got over the the awe, if you like, of walking up those steps and thinking, mm. I actually, you know, I work here. Yeah. yeah. It, it it is a really really special, privileged position to be in. And the day you stop that is the day you should retire. Stop feeling that. Stop feeling it's that. It's a day you should retire. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, We've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organization, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. Yeah. And so um, maybe if we can, I'm, I'm conscious of the, of the time. Um, I could talk to you all day about this. It's really interesting stuff. Um, but I'm conscious of the time. So... Can we, can we like kind of maybe zoom forward a little bit because um, you, you're not just an MP, you've become, you've become a minister. Um, so can you talk to me about, about that, how, how that came about and what that feels like? I mean, that's a, that's a level above again, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. And, and really, I don't understand anyone who goes to parliament who doesn't aspire to be a minister because that's, you know, you get to sit at that table at the top floor on the, on the 10th floor of the beehive. And New Zealand has a really um, unique uh, Westminster system that that cabinet table is only cabinet ministers. There's no officials there. You, you have to know your stuff. You have to be well briefed. Um, so there's no help if you're, trying to, if you're trying to convince your colleagues, if you've got a paper, there's no help from, from your officials. You, you're the one that can be questioned by 19 people, mm -hmm. particularly the prime minister. Mm -hmm. So, so I've never understood anyone who didn't aspire to be a cabinet minister. And, um, and really you pinch yourself that, that you have that opportunity. And, and I just, you know, I worked with some, some amazing people. John Key was just an incredible intellect. Bill English, the biggest intellect I've ever come across in, in, all, in all my life. Beats even my husband. Um, I don't tell him that too often. Um, uh, and people like Stephen Joyce, who just have so much commercial knowledge, and um, uh, you know, it was it was an absolute uh, pleasure to to go in and and 
Chris, someone like Chris Finlayson, who's a very talented lawyer, but he he brought to his his treaty work such innovation that um, brought both worlds together, Matarangi Māori and and um, or Ma- the Māori worldview, and 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 melded that into legal frameworks in ways that no one had ever thought about before. And so, you know, there were some amazing, amazing times. Um, one of the things that people forget is, of course, when we went and became government, we had the global financial crisis. So we went into, you go into government and you think, this is going to be great, I'm going to be able to do X, Y and Z, and there was no money. Mm. Um, and I remember Bill English saying, you know, there will be no extra expenditure this year. So if you want to do anything new, You've got to stop doing stuff. So that became my mantra. Mm. I had up on my on my notice board Rutherford saying we have no money, therefore we have to think. And 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 it was a really good discipline actually. Mm. But I, I do remember we had a um, a big uh, expo with with all different groups um, look you know trying to trying to get together and talk about how we could how we could bring the country back to its feet. Um, in a whole different range of ways, and it was held up in Auckland. Um, and we came back to, to Cabinet after it, and, and the one thing that had got through was new money was $50 million, which was a lot of money, for cycle trails. And you think, I mean, wait, oh, this is the boss's, thing, huh? this is the Prime Minister's promoted this, so we all had to go along with it. <laughs> but you think how that little what seemed like a lot of expenditure, but actually it was a drop in the bucket. And you think how that has changed New Zealand in the last 20 years. It was amazing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, you, you get to experience just such interesting, um, unexpected treasures that, mm. that stay with you for life. Yeah. What were some of the highlights for you? Because, I mean, you were, you were in politics for... What, about I went up national politics. Maybe national politics. Eighteen uh, years, I think. Um, yeah, eighteen actual span twenty one because yeah. of course I had a, a term out. Oh, look, I, I think being a cabinet minister always is a highlight, and and you have your triumphs, and you have. I mean, I had I, I, I still I still have a passion for education. Obviously, that's my background. That's my family experience. Um, I I. I picked up a, a portfolio that I knew that New Zealand had been at the top of the list and was on the downward slope. Um, and, you know, we, we, we tried to do things to to lift our, uh, particularly our Māori and Pacifica students, but also, um, and I see Nationals brought it back again, to get some accountability back to parents because because teachers only have kids for a short period of time. Actually, your best teachers are your parents, but they need to understand um, how their child is doing, where the weak areas are, where they can help. And, um, you know, I, 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 I worked hard to try and get that through to the unions, that it wasn't about judging good teaching or bad teaching. It was about trying to create a progress that could be followed by both um, teachers and parents and students. Actually, the students picked it up very well. I went into classrooms where kids would take me out and there'd be a big wall that would have, you know, the progress that they were making. they say, well, look, I'm really, I'm really bad. I'm not doing particularly well in my mathematics, but my reading, I'm way ahead of, of you know, um, 
blue class or whatever it was. So, so as I say, kids kids know they know who they know which groups are the top groups and which aren't, um, and they know that whether they're um, up with the rest of the class or falling behind. Mm. Um, so, are you referring to around there about the the national standards. national standards implementation? Yeah, and and the opposition used to say, well, they're not they're not national and they're not standard. Well, of course, they're not standard. I was very much. Um, uh, conscious of the fact you, you, know, you, you don't want to you don't want to teach to a test you don't want to be testing kids because that only says what they learn on one day whereas what you want to be doing is watching a child's progress over a period of time and using various ways that teachers have mm. to to assess the progress that they were making mm. and then track that um, and talk to parents about it because parents can help I had my uh, granddaughters um, for the week before Christmas and, and the mother said to me, the teachers said, you know, for the littlest one, we've got to keep her reading up because mm. kids over the Christmas holidays, six weeks, they often fall behind. Yeah. If they're not natural, enthusiastic readers in mm. particular. So she has to, you know, can you make sure that every night mm. we go through one of her books? Um, and that's how that's how parents want to be involved and need to be involved in, in children's education. And all too often you hear parents say, look, I have no idea. I just have no idea. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know what I can do to help. Yeah. Mm. So that was, you know, I still am passionate about education. I, I still, yeah. still um, want to make sure that, because it, it is the enabler. Mm. It means it doesn't matter what your background is. If you get a good education, mm. Uh, and you, it, it enables you to go on and do a whole lot of things. Yeah. Um, as, as, as Minister of Tertiary, which I was for about mm. 14, 15 months, nearly killed me to have the whole lot. I said to Jan <laughs> Tanetti, be careful. Um, but, you know, to see to be at a graduation and see someone who was the first person in their family ever to get a, a degree, mm. You know, that is really something. Mm. Or even to go on to be the first person in their family to go on to tertiary education. Mm. That that is really something and that mm. and that gives that that person a, a huge opportunity in life. So education is the enabler. Mm. So was that a was that a difficult time for you implementing that? I mean, yeah, from what I've read. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was. Ha, the wor- it- the worst thing was um, and we saw a bit of it this weekend that some people are so wound up with their point of view that they don't care about their safety or other people's safety. And the worst time I had was a conference in Rotorua. And, um, and I'd, I'd, I've done something with early childhood. And so there were protesters there about early childhood. And regardless of what went on in the conference, when I came out, there was a whole group of people from the early childhood sector, and I stopped and talked to them, and um, and and talked about what you know, because you're always trying to explain. There's always reasons why you do. You don't just do things because you know you want to get at them or off the top of your head you thought it was a good idea. There's normally, you know, a thoughtful process that you've been through, and and trying to explain to them what my thinking was, why I was doing whatever I was. Doing. I can't even remember what it was now. Um, and and then and then you know after after about ten minutes I wasn't getting anywhere and they're starting to to wind themselves up, and so um, I had the secretary for education Karen Sewell was with me and 
my press secretary and I can't remember, there's someone else, um, might have been an advisor, and they said, you know, the car's waiting, I think, I think, I think you, you know, I think you should should get away now. So we did, and we took my leave of the people and got in the car, and then some of them went and put themselves in front of the car with their children. They had small children with them. And that's that was really scary that they would risk, you know, put their own children at risk to make a political point. Um, mm. and there was a bit of that, mm. which, yeah, it was, it was tough. It how, was tough how does that kind of, that, when you say it's tough, how does that really feel? So I think there's, some, there's something in this. Scary. I mean, obviously, it's when you're a politician, minister, very much in the public eye, um, and, and we can we can see we can see what's on the surface, right? But you've already told us that you're a person who keeps your yeah. emotions, um, you know, behind a bit of a screen, for want of a better phrase. But how how is it real? I mean, at the end of the day, you're just a you're just a person trying to do your best. Yeah, yeah, that's Never mind right. what side of the yeah. political fence you're on. You're trying to do what you think is is best, mm-hmm. and like you said, it's not just a off the cuff kind of idea. Uh, there's some thought and there's some. Effort and energy has gone into it yeah, in, the, in, the, yeah. in the back in the back of that. How how does it feel though when you're coming up against that kind of that kind of thing so, when you're implementing the standards yeah. and you're getting back from principles and all that kind of stuff? How does that? How do you take that personally? You 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 either cope with it or you don't, and and a lot of people don't. Um, I think because I I am that sort of person, I could keep I could keep that inside, and I could still have. A, you know, present a reasonable face, um, try and get a bit of humour sometimes. Like that that conference, they'd organised um, different placards, different coloured placards. So when I mentioned particular words, they would hold up those placards, which was a bit silly really. Um, so so you, you, you co- my, my way of coping with it was when I knew I was going to say national standards, I'd say to him, I'm going to say it, so get ready to hold the blue ones up, you know. <laughs> um, another time I went and they and they were standing at the back, I think it was PPTA, and they were all standing at the back with these big placards, but I didn't have my glasses on and I'm short-sighted so I couldn't read them. Um, and I said afterwards, you know, well, look, I'm sorry, but I couldn't see what was on your placards because I didn't have my glasses on. Mm. Uh, so you, you develop ways of coping, but that... That one with the people in front of the car was the first time uh, I really saw fanaticism almost, mm. um, and and I had a really good relationship with my uh, my chief executive with Karen Sewell, and and she she could see through my facade that I was really shaken by that. She took me off to a coffee bar actually. I went past it not rec- not, not long ago. And and it all and I felt myself shaking mm. because I got there and I just burst into tears um, with her in the bathroom, um, and then you know she took me out and we had a cup of coffee and, and we sat round and, and and sort of had a bit of a debrief. But generally, um, I've been fortunate that I've had chief executives who've helped me with a lot with a lot of that. Mm. Um, you know, you develop good relationships, trusting relationships, and so. They can see, um, they can see through the facade a bit, mm. uh, but but it does shake you. And, and as I say, many people give up. They can't. They can't cope with it. Uh, the and stress. I, and I, I, yeah, it is stressful. Mm. 
and and I've got a, had a really good family who who um, who've always been very supportive, both both children and particularly my husband. And then um, the party itself actually gave me a huge amount of support, uh, and um, one or two um, party members uh, would would ring me just out of the blue and just you know say, look, know what. I know, you know, what your jobs, it's tough. And so so extraneous support. And then every now and then you'd get I'd get someone from the education um sector who who would who would also reinforce that we actually believe, you know, you're on the right track. Right. Yeah. You you're doing the right thing. So all of that sort of bolsters you that you mm. that you it's when it's when you feel you're absolutely alone, I think that's the most vulnerable time. Yeah. And, and have um, you felt that? And have you, have you been no, no, I, 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 no, I haven't. I, I, I've always, um, no, I, I, ha- I haven't. Mm. Which, which is probably why I've been able to cope mm. so well. You, you've talked, and I wanted to touch on this um, to make sure I, re- I remembered to do so because you, you've just mem- uh, mentioned your family there mm. and your parents. Obviously, I, I think you know the parents. Your parents must have been really proud when you became minister of education. Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. I think because did I also read that your your mum. Couldn't um, because she was a woman didn't get higher mm. education, mm. Uh, and then so here That's you right. are, minister of That's education. Right. So yep. that must have been a, a great thing for, yep. for you and your family, uh, and obviously very supportive. You've talked about your team, I think, in your valedictory speech as well. You you, you made reference to everybody in your team that supported yeah. you. So obviously that was very important in helping you get through those yep. tough times, not just the good times, yep. but the tough times as well. How, how important is it to have? Good people around you. In, oh, in very those kind important. Of roles. Very important. And and I've always said, um, particularly to my team, <laughs> my family. I don't have to say it to because they do it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So you know, I've never liked. I've never wanted to have people around me who were what you'd call yes people. Mm. Um, always given my staff free license to to be upfront and honest. I've always respected that. Um, you know, I can be defensive like anyone. Um, criticism's always hard to take, but but it's it's you know I've 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 welcomed um, having a team that can be honest with me, but but also very supportive. And 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 I've had some amazing people work with me and for me mm. over the years. Um, family are, are always frank, mm. um, and, um, and and that's good. That's mm. that's fine. Uh, because you you know you need that they they, they ground you, yeah. um, but I've d- I just think I've been incredibly fortunate, and even now where I am in Tauranga, um, as in the commission, tremendous staff there, supporting the work that the commission's trying to do, and my my fellow commissioners, um, you know, each one of us brings different skills to the table, and you respect that, and you make the most of it, and you end up with a very strong team. I just want to pick up on a comment that you said, or I think is an important one, which is um, words to the effect of, um, you know, that nobody likes criticism. It's hard, you know, hard to take. But it's also necessary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And yeah, I think if is. we shy away from criticism, yeah. hearing each other's perspectives, hearing someone else's different opinion, yeah, there's no growth in that. No, no. So... Uh, you know, as a as a minister, of course, three days a week you're down in the house and you can you can be questioned. Um, 
And so we always had a debrief afterwards. You know, how did I handle that? Because because I'm not actually, um, I've never been good at quick off the mark. I'm, I, I don't have that um, sense of humour that I can make. You know, some people have that witty repartee that they can crack up. At, you know, yeah. I like at to think time. I do, but I don't think. <laughs> maybe I don't. I, I just know I don't. <laughs> And so so very early on, I decided, when I became a minister, I, I decided I wasn't going to do the Women's Weekly type thing. I, I, that's not my style. Um, and I wasn't going to try and be the, 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 witty rep, um, the, the witty person in Parliament. That's not my style. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I want serious roles and I want to be taken seriously. Um, so, so when questioned... I want to give factual answers. I want to be, you know, open. Um, and so, so I wasn't always. Um, and we'd have a debrief, and and my and and particularly my um, press secretary. I had two press secretaries. One of them was with me almost the whole time I was a minister, which I was eternally grateful. He was a, a very doer Glaswegian, and, and but a very very good man. Mm. And um, and he would tell me, you know, well, I don't. Really, you could have done that. You could have done this in a different way. You know, his his criticism was always in a constructive way, mm. and and that's what makes a difference, I think. Um, so I learned a lot, and and you do. Um, if everyone tells you you you're wonderful all the time, well, you never change. Mm -hmm. You keep on doing the same old things, and you know, as we know, if you keep on doing the same old things, you get the same results. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's good. That's good. I, I'm again. I'm conscious of the time, and I really want to get to your current role mm -hmm. um, as commissioner at the Tauranga City Council. Yeah. Um, I've read. I've read a little bit about your thoughts on. Um, I think there was a, a quote, words to the effect of, "This is not necessarily the right way to do things." Um, but you're 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 in there. How how did? Can you just describe how that came about and what your thoughts are on the need for that to happen? Yes, um, no, it, it isn't. It isn't the right way, and and I think everyone regrets that that it was necessary. But it was necessary, um, and uh, for a whole lot of reasons. So I got a call. I'd re I'd retired, uh, and I got a call in January to ask if I would be interested in the role. Um, now this was twenty twenty one, so we were still sort of coming out of COVID. Um, so we, we still had restrictions and things. So I, my husband and I had a good talk about it, and it was for about 14 months, I think, um, the, the proposal. And, look, I, I'd spent the last um, 15 years working to um, see the help with the economic success of the Eastern Bay of Plenty. You know, things like the mussel farm in Portiki were, were, were going to be massively... Um, life changing for the people that lived there, uh, and and so, but all of that relied on on Tauranga, which I thought was you know a growing city, and you know, I thought it was all going well. So I was quite surprised that that, that you know, when when that was offered. So I said, well, yes, I'm I'm interested in that. Um, and then they rang and said, would you would you be interested in taking over as chair? And funnily enough, I mean, I've never wanted to be a mayor. I always, I always said, my husband always said, well, you know, why, why aren't you, 
Why aren't you looking for that? Why why aren't you looking? Why, why aren't you yeah. like women? Why why aren't, don't you want to be the prime minister? <laughs> um, so I'd never sort of thought about the the actual leadership role. And and my husband said, "Well, of course. Why, why on earth would you not consider that?" I said, "Well, I've never done that. It's sort of, it's not a mayor, but you're sort of in that in that role in the council." So he encouraged me um, to take it on. And, and I thought it was a good challenge, see if I could do it. Mm. Um, so, so when I got here and saw, I walked up Devonport Road, I think it was about the second night that I was here, I just could not believe my eyes. It had been a long time since I'd been into Tauranga CBD. And I rang my husband that night and I said, you've got to get over here. And so I can see, you know, this, this city is in trouble. And I hadn't realised, and I don't think anyone in Wellington really realised how how bad it had got. Um, really, for a number of reasons, growth had just overwhelmed the city. And its its population has doubled in 30 years. I don't know that there's any other place in New Zealand that's that's had that. Mm. Um, and, and, and I kept thinking, why didn't... I was in cabinet, sitting around the cabinet table talking regional growth and regional development. I had no idea what was happening in Tauranga. So the relationship with Wellington, I think, has not been great. And so the issues that Tauranga was facing and has faced over the last 30 years, um, I, I don't think Wellington, the bureaucracy nor the political spectrum, really understood. Um, you had smart growth here. I knew that Smart Growth was the was the sub-regional body and was doing all the planning and I thought that was handling it all. But, but the delivery is a whole different ballgame. So we have um, we have arterials that have been designed 30 years ago um, for the population of 30 years ago that haven't been upgraded. Um, the, the one thing that we have kept up with here is the waters. So the, the stormwater the wastewater and, and the drinking water, well managed, very well invested in um, and, and very well prepared for growth. Uh, but everything else, we had, commu- we, we had community groups, um, sports groups coming and saying, our numbers have trebled in the last um, 15 years or doubled in the last 15 years. We've been coming to council saying, we're turning people away, we're turning kids away from playing sport we need more facilities, mm. and nothing's happened. So, um, so that so the job of the commission just got bigger, and we had to say to the minister, "Well, look, here's the work program, here's the risks. Um, if you if we go back to democracy too early, uh, and we get the same sort of people back in, um, nothing will be embedded. Uh, so, so that one of the reasons we're put here was to embed." a 10-year capital investment program, really, um, none, all of that could be overturned overnight. Uh, and we really need to be a bit more time to be able to embed it, and, that, and that's what the minister gave. Mm. Um, so we go back to d- democracy um, elected members uh, in July of next year. Mm. Um, and, and I think that will be a good thing for the city. This is long enough to have commissioners in place uh, and our job has been to try and backfill a lot of that 
um, both with with transport and with community facilities, mm. and then prepare the city for growth mm. as well. So can I can I ask and. I, I'm assuming, I don't know much about the commissioner's role, I'm assuming it is to make decisions like you've just described about long-term yeah. investment and infrastructure. But from your perspective, and not to fix necessarily the problems that resulted in you being in this role, but having been in national government and uh, and the roles that you've had in the past, both lo at local and national level, what are the kind of fundamental causes that have led to this situation for Tauranga and what's to stop it happening again either here or somewhere else? Yeah. And that's what everyone's worried about is that we'll go back to the same old way. So so from what I can gather, and I'm not a Tauranga resident, so I, I, I go on what people tell me. There's always – so, so, so Tauranga started as a small um, village and the Mount still talks about the need to keep it as a small, you know, that, that, that small beachside vibe. But actually, it's New Zealand's largest, fifth largest city. Mm. It's it's got New Zealand's biggest import port, and rapidly becoming its biggest export port, right in the heart of it. Um, so, so, and you have to invest in your cities, and 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 it became a place for retirees, and quite rightly, they watch their pennies. Um, you know, mm. they've worked hard all their lives, mm. and and so they they don't want. The mantra is don't let the rates go up too much. Well, that means you don't invest. Um, and, and actually, if they look back in their youth, and I've had a few conversations with them, you think, you know, when you were a young family person, what was your council doing? Mm. Because, because most of them were investing to make sure that the city was prepared for the future. Um, and, and that's what we've got to do. So, so growth is happening rapidly, which means you've got to think carefully about, uh, and, and we're challenged um, geographically, but, um, apart from ge geologically. Mm. So we've got all these peninsulas that we can perhaps build on. So the city's spreading out in a whole different range of ways, which means people drive in their cars. That's why we're so car dependent and mm. on it. Um, so, so you've got to think carefully about how growth's going to happen, where it's going to happen, and then, and then central government has to play its part by providing that infrastructure, that roading infrastructure, mm to enable urban growth in a, in a sensible way. And that partnership simply hasn't been there. Um, and so a big part of our role has been making sure that Wellington understands exactly what's happening here and how they need to invest as well as the ratepayers mm. to, to, to help the city. Mm. Um, and that means we all have to be talking the same language. So, again, relationships across the sub-region um, with the regional council and with Western Bay and with the business sector and with the developers, we all have to be um, uh, talking the same things mm. because what happens in Wellington when you get different voices, Wellington stands back. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I get the, the the kind of dichotomy, if you like, of the older generation are the ones that are paying the rates. I want to keep those down. The younger generation can't afford housing, so they're not paying rates, yeah. but, but we need all the infrastructure for, for them and future yeah. generations. It's like, where does that investment come That's from? That's right. That's exactly right. So what we've tried to do, so, so and, and the other thing we found was the, the people were grumpy because they felt they were paying for growth. And actually the residential 
um, rates were paying for growth. So, so we've had a look at the rating system. The, I have to say the commercial sector has been amazing in that they knew they weren't paying enough and they've been prepared to pay more. Um, and we've certainly, um, and, and we have to have evidence, so, so we've used the good evidence um, to back that up. And they might not like paying more, but they are paying considerably more. And that's eased the burden on the residents a bit. We've also then looked at where you can identify particular groups that benefit. Um, so user fees and charges, mm. they should be um, they should be keeping pace with inflation, mm. so that there's n little need for ratepayer subsidy, mm. um, unless there's a public good, and then you have to decide how much public good versus mm. private good. So trying to get some of those disciplines across. Mm. So we act exactly like a council, but you can't. Just because we're not elected and we're not looking over our shoulders, which which you you do when you're a politician, um, doesn't mean that we don't have to take the community with us. Because if if we don't take the community along with us, understanding what we're doing and why, then when we go, they'll just revert back. Yeah. So that's been a big part of the focus is making sure that we talk to people about what's needed, what we're trying to achieve, and and where the future lies. Yeah. Just very quickly, I've got a question I want to ask. And you mentioned the word disciplines. Mm -hmm. I think a different context to what I'm going to ask. I think in your valedictory speech, you talked about um, helping create a code of conduct for Parliament. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there are obviously some, if you like, high level issues around the region of being on the same page, understanding, investing for the future, that kind of thing. But as, as a council, who have to wade through all of that and produce outcomes that will a get them re-elected because they're doing good things that the people support, um, but b are things that, that that is progress because it's needed. What do we need to change as far as councils are concerned and how they function and operate together? Because from the outside, I do a lot of work in leadership and um, teams and workplace cultures and things like that. From the outside looking in, and I appreciate that's just one perspective, it looked like that team couldn't get along and work out how to yeah. work as a team, which yeah, was right. causing a problem for everyone. Well, well, that's that, and that, and that's a role for leadership. You know, that's the reality. The mayor has to, as the, as the leader, has to be the one that shapes that team. Now, you're never going to get a, a whole group of people from you know different walks of life, different ages, different backgrounds different experience, different skills, all thinking as one. If, if you do, there's something wrong because that's not our community. Mm. But see, a big part of governance is collective responsibility. Mm. I've always, to me, that's that's my mantra. Mm. Let's have a jolly good ding-dong debate and, and respectful because mm. everyone brings their, their point of view and, and they're entitled to that. But let's thrash it out. Mm. Well, once we make a decision... We've made that decision and then we all get in behind it. Commit to Because it. sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Mm. And for me, uh, and politics is all about compromise. You never get 100% of what you want. Mm. Um, and that's right. Mm. That That's actually right. Mm. Uh, because that, that way lies dictatorship. Mm. So, so you and, and I think of, um, I think one of the best examples was David Seymour getting the end of life legislation through. And that had been tried 
three or four times and 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 not and not succeeded. Now, yes, the community was probably in a different place, but I saw David because I was deputy speaker and I sat through you know the endless all night um, sessions till the early morning. I saw David make compromises all all over the place in order to keep his votes because what was important was getting the 61 votes to get it over the line. Mm. In the end, getting the legislation was over the line mm. and, his, and, his, and, and, and that's what politics is all about mm. is um, you, you, you've got to be prepared to make a compromise and you've got to be prepared that you've got to let go of some of your pet mm-hmm. um, projects mm. or, or ideas because you can't get that um, agreement round the table. Mm. But once the decision's made, then everybody puts their wheel um, shoulder to the wheel and you get on and you deliver it. And what we have seen in Tauranga is that hasn't happened and the people who've lost the vote have then gone back and tried to rehash it all, garner more support to come back and have their way. And, and that's not only destructive to the community because it says a decision's not a decision, um, it's like teaching, saying, you know, how many times do you say no to your kids? Mm. And then eventually, if they keep nagging, you eventually say yes. Well, you've undermined all the, mm. all the no's beforehand. And that's what decision making is like. But you also destroy your organisation. So we ended up with an organisation that was really good at planning, terrified, terrified to put up a report that wasn't, you know, didn't dot every I and cross every T, mm. but, but also incapable of delivery because it hired a whole lot of people that were good at planning because they never had to deliver anything because it just went round and round and round. Mm. And if a decision was made, they knew that in six weeks' time that decision would be reviewed Mm. and probably changed. Um, And so you end up with a car park that's being built and decisions are still being made around what it's going to be used for. So eventually it's structurally Mm. unsound. Mm. Mm. And... I'm sorry to say that we're going to, have to <laughs> because you've got important meetings to go to. Otherwise, I would stay here all day and have this conversation. And maybe we have to uh, invite you back and continue um, if you are open to that. Uh, but look, can I just say thank you very much again for your time today? It's uh, been a fascinating conversation. I really do appreciate it. Um, I, I could have got into um, a lot more detail in a lot more areas. I'm sure <laughs> yes. uh, had time not have been a constraint. But um, I'm grateful for what we, what we did get um, from you, the words of wisdom that you've shared with us and your experiences and the lessons learned. Um, it's been fantastic. You're very welcome. Look, I, I mean, I've just been, I, I just consider myself a really fortunate person that I've had such amazing opportunities. And, and that means that I've had a really fascinating life. When I look at my life, um, it is, it's fascinating. And I've met some amazing people and had incredible experiences that, um, I'm ever so grateful for. Fantastic. Thank you. Cheers. As you will hopefully know by now, if you've seen other episodes, this segment of the podcast is all about wisdom worth sharing. At the end of every interview, I look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation. And I summarize them here. Before I get into the wisdom that Anne shared with us, I need to mention Anne's legacy. Due to time constraints, Anne needed to be at another meeting, and I ran out of time. Wasn't able to ask her about her legacy until after the interview had finished. Anne told me to refer to her valedictory speech, 
from when she retired from Parliament as a National MP after nearly 20 years. Essentially, Anne's life's work, and thus her legacy, has been to help positively change lives through bringing about change to systems. This was what drove her to get into local politics in the first place, serving as Deputy Mayor of Napier City Council, as well as elected member on the Hawke's Bay Regional Council. It was her passion for change that drove her to then be in Wellington as an elected member of parliament, where over a period of about 18 years, she served as Minister for Education, Minister for Social Development, Minister of Corrections, Minister of Police, and Minister of Local Government. The latter possibly resulting in her being invited to take on her current role as Commissioner overseeing the Tauranga City Council, where she continues to bring about change that will affect the lives of all who live in the region now and into the future. Irrespective of your political persuasion, it's important, I feel, to recognise the work of someone who has passionately believed in something, enough to give up their personal lives, and as we've heard from other politicians on this show, work long, hard days to bring about positive change for the people they serve. Whether you believe what they believe or not, we must acknowledge the effort and commitment that goes into dedicating your life to something, like Anne has. It's easy for us to stand back and pick fault with what they do from a distance, but would we swap our lives for theirs and put ourselves up for the level of criticism that they receive? I nearly did at one point. Well, I was willing to put my name forward anyway as a candidate. But in many ways, I'm glad that I was able to learn a lot from that process without actually having to follow through and become a politician. I think it's harder than it looks. And I believe there are not that many who would knowingly and willingly subject themselves to the range of emotions they must experience on a daily basis. From frustration and self-doubt, through to a sense of achievement, and then witnessing the highs and lows of those they serve. Anne called herself a stroppy, straight-talking person who holds back and doesn't like to show her emotions. But that she was tested when she was Minister for Education by young children who would bring her to tears. Anne talked about the fact that it's always hard to take criticism, but without criticism, there's no growth. People fear change, even when it can bring about good things for us. We become stuck in our comfort zone. That might not be that flash where we are, but there's uncertainty with change, and that can keep us where we are. And talked lovingly about her parents. Understandably, she was emotional, recalling her childhood after the recent passing of both her dad and then her mum. They were both teachers, and they were very strict, according to Anne, who was the eldest of four children, all of whom followed in their parents' footsteps and went into teaching, including Anne, who left after a short while at her father's dismay. But as she told him, she went on to become the Minister of Education. Whether it was because they were teachers or a sign of the times, her parents drove their children to succeed, even questioning when they came second. Why did that happen? so that they could learn from it and do better next time. It seems far removed from the times that we're currently in, where that kind of attitude is almost frowned upon. I asked Anne if her mum and dad's approach to parenting was beneficial to her, and she believes it was. It was integral in her being successful in her own life. It taught her that you had to work hard. The more you put in, the more you get out, Anne said. But you also have to be open to learning 
in order to grow. And reminded us that failing to do so means that we keep doing the same things, expecting different results, which as we know from the famous Einstein quote, is the definition of insanity. As an extension of being open-minded and willing to learn, Anne talked about the need for compromise. She said it was key to progress. Without compromise, ultimately, we end up with the dictatorship. I was reminded of Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team, which I refer to in my work a lot. When Anne spoke of the need for everyone to have their say, have a bit of a ding-dong, I think Anne labelled it as, and then everybody must get behind the decision and not pull in different directions, engaging in backroom politics, because this is when things fall apart. The role of the leader is to engage everyone, be open to different perspectives, but then make a decision and take everyone on the journey with them. That is leadership. If nobody's following, you simply can't be a leader. Hopefully, you've been able to take away many insights from this interview that you can apply to some aspect of your life, work and legacy. Use them, share them. As I always say, sharing is like teaching and teaching helps us to retain what we've learned and enables us to commit to change, which is always necessary if we are to enhance our life's work. I hope that you're successful, happy and safe in all that you do. And remember, live a life that's a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.